bringing order to the intersection of public, private, and civic. This is Infrastructure Momentum Makers. Welcome to Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada, the only software solution purpose-built to securely run complex and high-value infrastructure procurement. All your infrastructure procurement processes in one place, all in order. And join me, Vratna Amin, as I speak with the movers and shakers at the intersection of the public, private, and civic sectors about the latest breakthroughs and developments in the world of infrastructure. I'm so excited to be joined by historian, author, and professor, Dr. Peter Norton. Peter specializes in the history of technology, especially in the world of transportation. He is the author of Atanarama, The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving. Peter is here today to discuss why robot cars create more problems than they solve, the history of car-centric policy, and what we can learn from it moving forward. Thanks so much for joining us, Peter. Welcome to the show. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Ratna. Thank you. As I mentioned at the top of our show, you are a historian. So I'd love to just jump right in with some history, which you are an expert on, if you don't mind. Can you take us back before the automobile age of the early 20th century? What did our streets and cities look like then? Well, in some ways they looked similar because in a lot of cities today, we have a grid street pattern and that would have been quite common in an American city of 100 or 120 years ago. But then there were so many differences to, I think one of the most striking would be to observe how many people were walking. It would have been most of the people going from place to place would have been on foot. Many of them walking into the street deliberately because that's where the streetcars were, the electric streetcars, the tracks went right along the center line of the street on many streets. And people would stroll right out into the street to board the streetcar. And then they would get off the streetcar and walk across as well. So they were busy. There wasn't a lot of regulation. People behaved as they do in busy corridors today when they're walking around like at an airport. A lot of it was sort of custom more than rules. And no one was going more than 10 or 15 miles an hour. And then by the 1930s or so, streets were forever changed. Maybe not forever, but till now changed by the presence of cars. What were the immediate effects of that for a person's experience walking around their town or city? Well, there was a bit of a shock when people started to notice automobiles. I mean, at first it was just a few, so it was a a novelty and something interesting maybe, but once they started becoming common, it could get very tricky to use the streets the way people had always used them before in ways they thought of as perfectly normal, that is strolling out for example, to get the streetcar. And there were increasing numbers of people who were getting struck and injured or even sometimes killed. There were also a lot of people who were just angry at motorists tooting their horns at them to get them out of the way as if they didn't belong there. So it became a space of increasing tension, sometimes anger, sometimes conflict, and sometimes injury or even death. And with the invention of so-called jaywalking, governments essentially made it illegal for pedestrians to share the streets with other modes of transportation, like you just described. What are the far-reaching implications of policies like this? 
Well, I think we have to begin by asking who's the street for? And before this term of abuse was being used, streets were primarily for people on foot or really for everybody, but with the understanding that if you use the street, you have to use it in a way that doesn't endanger or unduly inconvenience others. And by that standard, it was actually the automobiles that were really the intruders and really had to be on their best behavior because they were the ones who weren't conforming with the norms of street use of their time. But to the people who were interested in selling more cars or in just driving conveniently, they saw an opportunity to redefine streets by, for example, using that term of derision, jaywalker. And the long-term implications are that we now have a transport system that's hostile to some of the most sustainable, affordable, inclusive, and healthful modes of mobility, including walking and cycling. And then I'll bring in zoning, or the way that we've defined how land is used. How do zoning codes play into all of this? And at a high level, what kind of reform do you think is needed there? Zoning actually was introduced around the same time as the automobile. You start to see zoning codes proliferate. Some of the early zoning codes were not that controversial because they would separate residential areas from slaughterhouses or brickyards or factories that had noisy operations. And people were generally in favor of that kind of thing that prevented you from living right next to a loud or smelly nuisance. But increasingly over time, zoning ordinances got used in other ways. So for example, to make sure that motorists had plenty of parking, some city zoning ordinances said you had to have a minimum number of parking spaces if you opened up a business in town. Also, zoning ordinances over the course of the 20th century increasingly made it tough to put convenient destinations close together, which could force people to drive. For example, if somebody made a residential subdivision, they would typically want it to be all single-family detached houses with nothing else, with the result that once you lived there, you might find that you needed a car just to get to ordinary destinations. And so zoning really did go hand in hand with increasing car dependency. Car dependency. When you describe adding parking, I think to most people that probably sounds like a good thing. Oh, I like parking. What's wrong with that? So the argument was if you open a business, you should offer parking because otherwise people will park on the curb and that can become a nuisance. The counter argument was that, well, we actually don't need to have every shop accessible to all customers by car. And it isn't really fair for, say, businesses to have to offer free parking to people who drive while there's no equivalent benefit for the people who walk or ride the streetcar or take the bus or ride their bike there. The zoning ordinances really did typically favor and sometimes almost require driving, but zoning ordinances took different forms in different cities. One of the most common effects was that they tended to make destinations farther apart. And once you do that, you're encouraging people to get cars just for, as a practical necessity of day-to-day -day living. In your writing, you've talked about the rise of the age of automobiles when there were campaigns, public campaigns to increase support for a car-based society. And you've compared that era to now with campaigns for autonomous cars. Can you expand more on that? 
Yes. So people who are in the automobile business, and I define that broadly, that could be manufacturers, dealers, auto clubs, uh, road builders, people with a business interest in driving, learned, especially in the 1920s, that if they wanted to increase their market, they were really going to have to sell the automobile, not just as a useful tool. For a lot of families, it was something to use only for holidays on Sundays. It was not an everyday way of getting to work, for example, even among families who owned a car. But the automobile business groups decided they could increase their market if they repackaged the car as an all-purpose transport necessity for everything, not just for holidays, but for getting to work. They even began to promote the two-car family on the argument that, you know, you don't want to leave your spouse stranded at home. And so what you see beginning in the 20s and accelerating thereafter is an effort to repackage the car as an all-purpose necessity instead of as a special purpose tool, and even to rebuild cities so that you can drive everywhere and selling a future in which driving meets all of your needs. And we still live with that today because automobiles actually don't work that well if everybody's using them in a big city. We get traffic jams. But this creates an opportunity to sell next generation technology as if it will solve these problems. The thing is, it generally can't solve these problems. I like what you just said about them being sold as all-purpose tools. And what I'm seeing today with climate events, with emergencies, is people really needing cars to serve many more purposes, such as places to live or escape vehicles and those without are disadvantaged. How do you see that all-purpose definition changing? I think it helps to begin by recognizing that, that that's very much what does need to change. We need to recognize that the automobile is a useful special purpose tool. It makes a really poor all-purpose tool because of its size, its cost, its dangers, its pollution, its carbon emissions, and the list goes on. We can recover a world where automobiles are special purpose tools that some people use for some jobs, but not the necessity to just get a job or just to get to work or just to get to school or just to get groceries. It's quite possible to design cities that are actually more pleasant, more affordable, more attractive, more people-friendly, where no one has to drive all the time. We know how to do it. It's being done. Some other countries do a much better job. We can learn from those examples. Okay, let's come back to the driverless or autonomous cars. What are some of the biggest dangers of autonomous cars, which are being sold to us now as the solution? It's an impressive sounding technology and autonomous has that effect. Now, robotic cars have all kinds of limitations. It's not clear to me that they can even serve the practical purposes of the people inside them because of the fact that the people who operate autonomous cars or robot cars really have a terrible choice. One is they can make the car go fast enough to be a useful convenience for customers, but then they would be dangerous to other people, especially to pedestrians. The other alternative is to make them go so slowly that they won't ever get in a crash or hurt somebody, but then they're not really worth paying any money to ride in because they're so frustratingly cautious and slow. And that middle space where they're fast enough to be useful but not dangerous or likely to get into a crash, that middle space is out of reach right now. 
One of the hazards is that the more cautiously programmed ones become a nuisance because they freeze up in the street the way some cruise cars have in San Francisco and Austin, Texas. But the list goes on because they're also incredibly expensive to build and operate. Yes, they don't need to pay for an Uber, but on the other hand, they have to be remotely supervised and they have to have a lot of tech. And this means they're actually not saving the operators any money. They're losing money on them. If I had to pick the one that I think is the biggest threat is that they divert our attention from the things we can do now with the technology we already have at less cost that would serve more people. Our attention is getting diverted away from those feasible things because of the pursuit of these robotic fantasies. Interesting. And whose attention in particular concerns you? Policymakers, for example, have a lot of responsibility for our future, but they are on the receiving end of sales pitches by these robotic car companies. And also the states are competing for business. We live in a country where states want to attract business. And one of the ways in which they can attract a business is to have less regulation, be more welcoming to companies. For example, when Uber wanted to operate driverless Ubers in California a few years ago, and California said, no, we don't think that's a good use of public street space, Arizona invited them in instead. So this means that there's competition and a sort of race to the bottom in terms of regulation of businesses. So one of the main audiences whose attention, I'm afraid, is getting distracted are the local and state policymakers and even the federal policymakers who are busy trying to have business-friendly policies that can get us into trouble if we're not careful. What are some of the far-reaching aspects of widespread robot car use that people may not realize? Like, What happens at scale? So assuming that, that they ever become common, a lot of implications follow from that. One is that because people will feel like their time is better spent in a robotic car because they can read, they can work, they can play games, they can sleep, they can watch movies, people may feel comfortable doubling or tripling their journeys. And that has big implications for traffic congestion, for safety, and for sustainability. It means more energy gets consumed. Yes, the vehicles are electric, but that energy has to be generated. It also means more opportunities for crashes because there's more driving. It means more traffic congestion and it means more urban sprawl. I don't actually think that's going to happen because I think the vehicles are too expensive and impractical for that to become common enough for that risk to play out. But that certainly is a risk and it threatens to negate all of the benefits that the promoters of robotic cars promise for them. I'm curious, Peter, if you feel like any of that analysis applies to electric vehicles, which are more present already, more common already, and charging infrastructure. Yes. So electric vehicles do have some some of those implications already. We have some excellent electric vehicles that somehow we don't think of when we say EV or electric vehicle. For example, electric bikes are amazingly good, largely because they're light enough that the battery let's say about 50% of the battery energy is moving the person while it's more like two to 3% that's moving the person in a battery electric car. There's also electric vehicles that draw their power from overhead wires or from a rail. And in that case, you don't need the big batteries. And 
big batteries are one of the biggest problems of electric vehicles. Sourcing the minerals for those is a human rights nightmare. It's also an ecological nightmare. I'm talking especially about the cobalt and the lithium that the batteries need is a huge problem. And it's not clear we can ever get enough minerals. And if we try, we could make problems worse for the people who mine those minerals, for the environments where those minerals come from, and also disposal problems at the other end of that cycle. So yes, electric vehicles do have a lot of hazards connected with them. I think they're a necessary part of our future, but we must not imagine that we can have as much driving as we have now and just electrify it and that that will somehow solve our problems. It won't. What do you think about robotic cars having to make philosophical decisions in real time? This has gotten a lot of attention, very theoretical questions like the so-called trolley car question, which you could explain. Can computers or artificial intelligence make those types of judgments? So a lot of researchers who are doing work that will contribute to robotic cars are doing work on matters like what decision should a robotic car make in a certain dilemma? Like, for example, if the car is in danger of either striking a hard object that would then injure the vehicle occupants or even kill them, or alternatively striking a pedestrian, which should it do? These sorts of philosophical questions are worth pursuing, but they're highly abstracted from reality because right now the robotic cars have a hard time even recognizing what a pedestrian is, let alone making on-the-fly choices between striking hard objects and striking pedestrians. If the vehicle is going fast enough to be that dangerous, then it's quite likely that the vehicle can't even make those calculations in time. A lot of people are quick to point out that robotic cars can sense things and react quickly. That's true. But what they can't do is shorten the braking distance. If the vehicle is going 40 miles an hour, from the moment the brakes are applied until the moment the vehicle stops is the same for the robotic vehicle as it is for the human-driven vehicle. The cognitive process is faster for the robot, but the braking distance is the same. So some of these dilemmas are sort of based on an illusory scenario where the response time is much quicker than it actually can be if the vehicle is going fast enough to be dangerous. I really think a lot of these philosophical debates are a diversion, not an intentional diversion, but a distraction from the much more present and real dilemmas that we face that we've talked some about already. Could you talk about that psychology for a moment? Why do we as humans get distracted by this theoretical question of the robotic car decision rather than these bigger picture needs we have? Well, I think some of that is due to the fact that we often underestimate the complications of robotic cars for the simple reason that the promoters of them have been very clever, very ingenious at presenting them to us almost as if they're self-evidently superior to everything we've got now and also inevitable. So if you just listen to the marketing, and some of the marketing actually comes from people that seem like experts, so that can confuse the matter further because we think we're hearing an expert, but it turns out that the expert is sponsored by a company. So do you think there could be a world where robot cars are safe, sustainable, and inclusive mobility solutions? No, I don't. 
Now, I admit I could be wrong. If somebody had asked me in 1920, will we have a future where people use cars for every transport purpose, I would have said no, because it would be such a bad idea and be so expensive and difficult and dangerous to make it work. Well, in a way, you know, I would have been wrong because we did pursue it, but that doesn't mean it would have been the right thing to do. We have a chance to get it right this time. We got it wrong last time. It is possible that if there's enough public policy support, enough subsidies, companies are willing to lose enough money experimenting and willing to take enough reputational damage, risking other people's lives and sort of subjecting them to the inequities that come with ubiquitous robotic driving, yes, we could have such a future. I think it would be a very bleak one, and I don't think it's a future we can afford to pursue for many reasons, the number one being the climate emergency. I'm curious, you've been working on these issues for a while, Peter, and writing about them, and I've been familiar with your work. The name of this podcast is Infrastructure Momentum Makers. Where is the momentum in moving away from these fantasy ideas of technology and cars solving everything? Well, it's improved in recent years because the promises were so over the top that beginning in about 2018, some of the bubble started to burst. I mean, it burst is really the wrong verb. It retreated. It retreated in part because of some well-publicized safety disasters, including the death of Elaine Hertzberg in Arizona and some others. It retreated in part because some companies, Tesla in particular, were overpromising to absurd degrees. But it's only retreated. It really hasn't gone away. The companies are trying different strategies. Some take a high-risk strategy, and you know Uber did that, and that was the strategy that cost Elaine Hertzberg her life. Tesla's strategy is relatively high-risk. Cruise takes a low-risk strategy, which sort of prevents them from being tainted by the death of a person due to a cruise vehicle, but at the same time contributes nothing whatsoever to actual practical mobility. So yes, the skepticism has grown and it is fully justified skepticism, but the sales effort is continuing and in some ways is getting more imaginative than ever. Mm, What are examples of imaginative sales? So it was interesting to me to watch as Cruz was preparing for a vote by the California Public Utilities Commission last August about whether to approve Cruz and Waymo to operate robotic taxis in San Francisco. And as we know, the Public Utilities Commission did give its approval in several major newspapers, including, of course, the San Francisco Chronicle with the headline, humans are terrible drivers. It's an ingenious headline because there's a sort of implication Cruise gives you the illusion of being better because they go so slowly that they don't have the momentum to cause the mayhem that they might at higher speed. But they don't work well. They cause traffic jams. They are frustratingly slow and they're very expensive to operate. So I think the latest award for imaginative marketing goes to Cruise. General Motors is also promoting a future of robotic cars that is an extravagant future, and that includes promises such as its current tagline. It's had this since 2017. The tagline is zero crashes, zero emissions, zero congestion. 
it's an absolutely preposterous promise. They can't get anywhere close to it. And in fact, they're actually developing enormous batteries for very large vehicles that are just in no way what we need for a sustainable mobility future. So given that human history is thousands of years old and cars have been common for nearly a hundred, how long could it take to get out of this mess (laughs) and to get out of this auto dependency phase that we're in? It's urgent that we get out of this car dependent situation quickly because it's unsustainable. And the distraction we're getting from the promoters of robot cars and to a lesser extent, the promoters of electric vehicles may make us take longer than we really have time for. There's a pretty close analogy here because by the time the Surgeon General's report on smoking and health was released in 1964, it was clear that cigarettes caused cancer. But we lost a couple of decades in the sense that in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, the tobacco companies promised that amazing cigarette filters and amazing tobacco formulations were going to make it safe to smoke their brand of cigarette. Now, this was wrong. It was false. And in fact, it took years or decades off the lives of tens of millions of people. And we are in an analogous situation where we need much less driving But instead, we're being promised that we can keep driving as much as ever because the vehicles are so amazing, just like they used to say the cigarettes are amazing. And we're at risk of repeating history in that those messages may cost us time that we really can't spare. But it's not all bleak because the other side of that coin is that once it was clear that cigarettes caused cancer, there were impressive public education campaigns, and even legal regulations and restrictions that did ultimately reduce smoking from a majority of adults down to a small minority that we have today. Mm, Great example. So what are some examples of better ways to get around that we can implement now that deserve our attention as opposed to robot cars? We have fantastic examples, some of them already in use, though it's not easy enough to use them yet such that they remain relatively marginalized. The first thing we can do really to make our mobility future sustainable and healthful and inclusive and equitable is just to encourage proximity. Sometimes this is called density. We have density now wherever we have traffic jams, but it's a density of vehicles instead of a density of people and social exchanges. It's possible to have proximity that feels less congested than a traffic jam, more pleasant to be in, but also means that destinations are close enough that it's possible to walk between them or ride a bike between them or ride public transit between them. So people-friendly density, people-friendly proximity can make things that don't work now work beautifully well. There's a lot of other things we can do. We can learn from success stories around the world. The Netherlands is a famous example of a country where in some cities, more than half the trips by people in vehicles are on a bike. That's a very impressive example. There are other places where transit is remarkably effective. And it's interesting that In this country, we've tended to criticize transit for costing us a lot of money. 
But when you stop to think about that, it is, of course, a service like a water supply. We don't mind paying money for a water supply. Moreover, it's less expensive to give people good transit than to have to buy a car and then have to pave half of your city to either move or park the car. There's many things we can do. Those are some of them. Mm, And at a city level, where should leaders have their attention to make streets and places safer and more people-centric? There's a lot of opportunities. I would particularly like to recommend the guidance that's offered by the National Association of City Transportation Officials, often called NACDO. They have wonderful, practical, clearly illustrated guides about how to adapt your city to promote a more sustainable and healthful and affordable and inclusive mobility. There are urbanists. These are people who specialize in urban design that takes advantage of cities' advantage, which is proximity or density. We have opportunities to take surface parking lots and turn them into something much more beneficial to the city. One of my favorite experts on the subject, Norman Garrick, a retired civil engineer formerly of the University of Connecticut, likes to say that American cities have stored up a enormous savings account in a land bank that we call surface parking lots. By that, he means these parking lots are mostly wasted space now. We could do amazing things, including affordable housing, transit centers, parks, schools, you name it. We could do wonderful things with the valuable urban land that's locked away under asphalt right now. I definitely see that around and hope that there'll be that same business mindset to create value out of these places that are parking lots. Peter, something I really loved about your most recent book is the way you point out the history of language and terminology that has captured folks' imagination, including the word technology, which we use all the time. And another one that stood out to me was data-driven. And could you share with our listeners, like, what's wrong with data-driven? How is that not the best thing we could ask for? Data-driven sounds really good. I mean, surely everybody would want their projects to be data-driven because that means, you know, you've done your homework and you're getting it right. Well, if you think about what we use data for, I think we'll all agree immediately that we need data. But if you think about it, what data really do for us is not drive us, they guide us. Data is like a compass reading. The compass reading can tell us which way we're going and they can tell us if we're going off course. But a compass reading cannot tell you where you should go. Data-driven has a tendency to get used by companies, sometimes by researchers or other experts, as a way of silencing people who have misgivings about the agenda in question. If, for example, a citizen says, I'm concerned about robot taxis being all over the streets of my city when actually what we really need is better bus service, well, then the robotic taxi company can argue our solutions are data-driven. We have all this data. And that data really doesn't tell anybody that robo-taxis are the way to go. All they do is tell you how the robo-taxis are performing. Mm, interesting. Yeah, that's helpful. Side note, I was reading a advertisement for a technology certificate for executives that use data-driven in the blurb. And since I had already read your book, I thought, 
Hmm. Maybe not. Data-driven began as a marketing term, and that's really all it's worthy of being because in reality, nothing is data-driven. The agenda comes first and the data follow. We need data to guide us, but data can't decide anything for us. I'm going to ask you two closing questions that we ask of all the guests. So first of all, when you're examining the complex history of transportation, and how it's led to where we are today. Where do you find order in the chaos? Where do I find order in the chaos? I would like to propose that there's a third way. Besides order and besides chaos, we can have vibrancy. Vibrancy can look like chaos, and order can actually be quite oppressive. We have order now in the sense that if you go to a city and you need to drive around the city, We have traffic regulations, we have lights, we have speed enforcement, we have crosswalks, we have plenty of order. Yes, people violate these rules all the time, but we have at least an aspiration for order. What we could have that I think is even better is something that might look like chaos, but is actually very functional and works very well. We've seen this work well in some cities not so much in the US, but in other countries that have experimented with removing the order that's imposed from above on a city. So there are cities, particularly in the Netherlands, also in Germany and the UK, some other countries, where they have tried experiments with removing the traffic lights, removing the distinction between the sidewalk and the street so that it's all one continuous flat surface from building line to building line, removing the paint on the streets, removing the signs. And it looks like an invitation to chaos. And instead, what you get is a wonderful vibrancy where people are entrusted to use the streets carefully. As a result, they become much more careful because they realize the engineers haven't designed out all the conflicts for them. So they're going to have to manage them themselves. We improve the traffic capacity of the streets that way. We make them more pedestrian friendly. That encourages drivers to pay attention to pedestrians in ways that they don't when they have traffic lights and paint on the roads and curbs and crosswalks. So I would like to put in a word for vibrancy as a third path apart from chaos and apart from order. Mm, Vibrancy, thank you for that option. One last question before I let you go. Is there any major infrastructure project anywhere in the world that's on your bucket list to go and see one day? Oh, there are a number. If I have to pick one, I will pick the th- a thing they have in Copenhagen in Denmark. I'm not sure I will pronounce it correctly, but it's called Sikkelslangen, which I understand means cycle snake. And what it is, is a elegantly curving sort of bridge only for bicyclists that seems to be like a ribbon over the harbor curving gracefully like the bow on a on a gift and it looks like a joy to ride and i'd love to ride that someday that sounds very magical peter thank you for this conversation and for all of your work to bring these stories to life It's been such a pleasure. I admire your work in helping to get the word out about the things we can do for the future that we need. 
Our guest today, once again, author, professor, and historian, Dr. Peter Norton. Thanks so much for joining us, Peter, to share some knowledge about the history of transportation and how it can inform the future. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you all once again for listening to our show. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find us. Until next time, I'm Ratna Amin, and this has been Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada.